<laughs> Greetings, my friends, and welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer, We're recording under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun. And today we continue the mission to arm humans with the tools to crush mediocrity, create mastery, and live in total wellness with my next guest, Ryan Severson. Ryan's a functional health coach with an amazing story, and I'm super stoked to have him on the podcast today, man. So thanks for joining me. Jason, thanks for having me, man. I'm honored to be here with you. Yeah, man. Just in our little uh, off-mic pre-interview, uh, we, we had a little uh, little uh, testicle difficulties coming up <laughs> to, the, to the thing getting this going. But just in our little off-mic pre-interview, man, it sounds like you've lived a really amazing life. So I know one of the things that really lights me up when I hear someone's story is if I can learn a little bit about their past and give me a little bit of context of where they're coming from. So maybe, you know, start with a little bit of uh, young Ryan's life. Uh, where are you from? Where did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in uh, the suburbs of St. Paul, um, Oakdale, Minnesota. Um, uh, my parents, uh, both parents from Minnesota, grant, come from a long line of athletes. So grandfather was inducted in the Minnesota Football Hall of Fame. His twin brother, uh, Golden Gloves boxer, best, like uh, very close friends with Herb Brooks. Um, so my uncles played hockey. My dad played baseball, golf. My whole family played golf. So sporting sports is really big for me growing up. A lot of competition in and around the uh, Severson household. Um, and, you know, just a kid uh, growing up in suburban Minnesota, dealing with the uh, the cold, harsh winters and the warm, um, the warm, humid summers. So in the summer, I'd be playing baseball. Fall would be football. Winter would be hockey. Um, until I got to my like middle school and that's where things started. Um, I started shifting more towards just hockey being my thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just uh, really big into sports. And then I, um, I don't, I'm trying to think about what time I started hitting the weights. I think I hit the weights around 11 or 12 cause I was really skinny. Um, so I think, well, uh, even I started hitting the weights at 11 or 12, but I didn't really get really big into them until probably my sophomore year of high school so that that's where like my my love for the iron kind of came in and working out with the uh the captain of the of the wrestling team and just you know putting on some pounds and then working my first job was uh working at a and w so it was just pounding hamburgers and drinking shakes and i think uh, between my uh sophomore and junior year i put on 30 pounds uh which was quite a difference because prior to that my sophomore year playing varsity hockey i i weighed um i was same height as i am now so about 5'11 and i weighed like one 135 145 so i was just skin and bones so just had to, to slap on some weight doing that but for sure man yeah but uh you know every time we go through the midwest we have to stop at the old a and w we don't have those days yeah. <laughs> yeah i'm surprised to still see them around man there's a few of them here and there you know it's the old school drive up to the thing uh, we don't have the people coming out in roller skates, but it's uh, it's a pretty cool experience. And actually, where I worked in high school, that was again that was my first job. Um, that was like where all the all the cool kids worked, and it was just like a big party at at uh, at the at the A and W. So we enjoyed that. That's very cool, man. So um, you mentioned your family was um, you know sounds like they're pretty prominent in the sports world, man. Did you feel like you had something to live up to there, or or what was going through your head seeing all that? Yeah, yeah, that was a, a big thing. I mean, um, that's something that still plays out in my life today. Like, am I good enough? I'm never good enough type thing. Um, you know, it's uh, my, my parents were very supportive of me really helping out. But it was a lot of times, you know, should have did this better, should have did that better. And coming from the long line of athletes and 
um, people sucking it up and doing things and just wanting to live up to that same level that like my, my uncle's all conference, my grandfather, all state, um, and, and all different sports. And, you know, I, I have to say my, my family was super, super awesome. Um, and the fact that, you know, when I would play any kind of athletics, like my uncles and aunts and cousins, my grandfather, uh, my parents and all of them would always be at all our sporting events. So it was really, really supportive in that regard. But, um, you know, I had some troubling things that happened to me earlier, like in probably at my, when I was five, around five years old, I didn't really actually figure this out until I was about 35 and things started to surface from beneath the, uh, from the subconscious after I started doing some meditation and stuff like that to come to find out that, um, I had been sexually molested at the age of five. Wow. And it was, uh, something that I, was pretty devastating to me. It was buried away and it kind of explained a lot of things for me because I dealt with a lot of social anxiety growing up through high school. Um, when I was 15, one of my best friends and ended up hanging himself. And that was really, really uh, detrimental to me. It really hit me hard because I was the last person to talk to him aside from his girlfriend. And I was upset that I didn't figure it out. And that kind of parlayed into like my first love, my girlfriend had broken up with me along with my best friend dying and all this, like, that's when I started drinking and getting into drugs and stuff like that. And being that athlete and, like really into lifting weights and not wanting to pollute my body or anything. I just like made this huge shift, like 180 degrees and, um, you know, kind of go, sort of going on the wrong path. And it kind of led to some, some wild stuff throughout my teens. Well, let's unpack some of that, man. I was, uh, that was quite a bit, right? I mean, um, yeah, from, uh, from young Ryan's life into young adulthood, it seems like you've been through quite a few things, but I've heard the story. I've heard it told, uh, quite a few times from quite a few different people, how at some point at later in life, there was a realization that something traumatic happened earlier in life. And having not experienced that personally, I'm just curious if you can sort of illuminate what that looks like, you know, like, you know, you hear someone say, I, I realized at 35 that something happened to me mm -hmm. at five years old. You know, what does that process look like? Because as an outsider looking in, you would think that something that traumatic would stay in your conscious mind for, you know, forever. I mean, I understand there's some sort of protective mechanism, but what mm -hmm. was your path to, to learning that? What did that look like? Yeah. So, um, you know, with the drugs and alcohol and all that stuff, like my throughout like my teen years and into early adulthood, I would numb out my anxieties. My, I would never let my, let myself feel my emotions. Cause I would always be numbing them out by either being around people, like constantly distracting myself, um, drinking, doing drugs, whatever it may have been, uh, to try to, to try to block that out. And, uh, when I, when I hit 35, um, I had been through a lot, um, I had been in the Marine Corps, uh, you know, did that. I didn't, I didn't see any combat, but, you know, just going through the Marine Corps was, you know, beating up on my body, then uh, playing competitive ice hockey when I got back in like some competitive men's leagues. I blew my back, but I had a back surgery. I had three surgeries in three years. I had a back surgery, knee surgery, and then a hernia surgery. Um, and all that stuff starts to pile up over time. And um, I, could never, could never stay in a relationship. I had commitment issues. Um, and it, you know, things started to boil and surface around the time that I ended up getting really sick at 35. So at that time I, I had become a 
uh, personal trainer. I was moonlighting as that. I was working for AT&T because uh, I was in telecommunications in the military. And so I used that skill when I got out. And when I started getting sick, I started like realizing, you know, at, at that point, I'd never been alone in my life. Like I'd always be distracted. I, you know, I stopped drinking. I stopped doing drugs because I'm like, I need to get over whatever was going to happen to me. It was at that time, you know, 35, it would take me 45 minutes to put my pants on in the morning and my back hurt so bad. I was like in excruciating pain and I was popping um, Advil and ibuprofen like Tic Tacs just to get out of bed and I was pounding coffee to wake up and I couldn't really figure out what was going on. I felt like I was 95 and I was 35. And so I just started doing some, you know, changing my diet and doing these things. And I started doing meditation. I got introduced to Holosync. And they were talking about how like this upheaval would happen, like this stuff from underneath the subconscious would start surfacing as I would get into these meditative states. And all of a sudden I have started having these flashbacks about um, uh, things that were happening to me. I wasn't seeing faces or anything like that, but it was like, why am I seeing this? And I've been going to therapy for, man, since I was like 18 years old, you know, for social anxiety and, and, and all these other things and couldn't figure out what was going on. And some of the things that I did throughout my life, like I had many therapists say, hey, I think you've been sexually molested. Like, you know, somebody your age shouldn't have known the things that you knew and, and things like that. And I was like, nah, and I think I heard too, like there's no such thing as repressed memories. And so I just, you know, wrote it off as nothing. But then as I started doing more personal development and like really digging into like trauma, this stuff started bubbling up and I started to see how it spreads like, like a cancer, like throughout, I mean, everything I was like, Oh, I had problems with women. I couldn't, I, I don't trust men. Cause it was a guy that did this, you know, I'm and I just, all these different things started surfacing and started putting the pieces together and, you know, started reeling, like realizing that. And I was like, Holy, sh Holy shit, man. I, I had this had happened to me at five. So, so you mentioned, um, hollow, did you say hollow sink as part of your journey? Holo, yeah. Hollow sink. Yeah. Hollow sink. Can you, um, sort of give us an idea of what that is. I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. So, so Holosync is from Centerpoint uh, Communications, I believe is their name. It's, um, I forget his name. He was actually on uh, the movie, The Secret. He was one of the people that was on there. Um, I think his last name was Harris maybe, but he is Korean. He does, he did a lot of meditation stuff with like Buddhist monks and he started coming up with these brainwave entrainments so it's all about reaching the different waves of the, like your, your alpha, uh, theta, delta, um, gamma, getting to these different brave way, or brain uh, entrainment. Um, and that's what Holosync is. And it's like a step stage. I think there's like 13 stages. It's quite expensive, but um, I'd heard a lot of people talk about it being really powerful. And so that was the first thing, like some of my mentors had said, hey, you know, give this a shot if you're gonna do meditation. So I did it and I was doing it religiously um every day and i started having out of body experiences where I, like i would was viewing myself from outside of my body and i was like whoa this is amazing but at the same time i was having all this upheaval coming i was having my anxiety got way worse i started um i, I was just extremely agitated but part of the whole same program is they would send you uh messages or emails like a couple times a week saying you're two weeks into the program this is what you should be expecting you might be expecting some upheaval so you might be feeling anxious or, or anything like that. And so I, at least I knew what it was, but that was a, that was like a really huge, powerful shift for me to start realizing like, holy cow, these things from my past have been haunting me for, you know, 30 years. Mm. 
Yeah, it sounds like uh, it really brought up some serious stuff, man. Like, is this uh, is this sort of a brand in terms of uh, sort of a technique, or is this just the name of the company that puts out specific meditations, or you know, what does that look? Yeah, like? Holosync is the brand, um, and they're like, I want to say they're one of the first to do the brain entrainments. Now you have things like Equisync and stuff like that, so they're using binaural beats in in the headphones and then this creates specific brainwave patterns within the brain to 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 mesh or sync both both hemispheres of the brain so you get that whole brain meditation and their um uh their marketing is like you can reach a let the state of a meditation in like a year or two that it takes buddhist monks you know 30 years to get to um and i never thought i'd be able to meditate after like three months and have an out-of-body experience. That was pretty cool. But I was definitely not ready for the upheaval, I'll tell you that. That's insane, man. So how did that come to you? I mean, when you when you started the meditation path, um, did you take to it pretty well uh, when you first started out? And then once you, you know, sort of became accustomed to it and the methodology, you know, how soon thereafter were you experiencing these really deep meditations? Um, I want to say probably, I would say about month two or three. So it's kind of like, again, it's, it's a step stage thing. You're supposed to work through like phase one. I want to say it's like three to six months and then you buy the next one. And then they, they up it, like they make the meditations more intense and then they can start putting subliminal messaging in there. Um, but I, this was all happening in the first round. And so I was meditating at that point when I started having these other, these experiences, I was meditating about about 60 minutes a day and I was like religious about it um because I thought that that was what I needed like I was just too stressed out and things like that but little did I know at that time like I was staying home I wasn't going out because I was just uh I I couldn't sleep I had insomnia I had pain all over my body my joints hurt I couldn't think um my girlfriend at the time like I would bring her to uh, events every once in a while we go out I could never introduce her because I couldn't remember her name it was like super embarrassing like the brain the level of brain fog that I had was out of control um, and again I had pain all over my body and I'd been to multiple multiple different doctors for this and they're all just telling me you need to you know de-stress and you know go see a therapist or you know here's some anti-anxiety medication and I'm just like there's more to this mm-hmm. and so I just I guess kept digging and I just thought this meditation would be a great start. And as I did it, um, you know, I wasn't going anywhere, but little did I know I was staying home and my home was what was really making me sick. Mm. So it wasn't the the brain fog and the anxiety wasn't necessarily tied to the childhood trauma or am I missing? No, that? well that, yeah, that's, that was more tri- tied to um, inflammation due to mold toxicity. Mm. But the childhood trauma really impacted me on a, my social levels. Like I was really, I felt really awkward socially. Um, for longest time, I couldn't look people in the eye. I always walk with my head down. Um, I couldn't be out in social situations unless I, unless I would get really liquored up. So that's you know with the and like the drugs and the alcohol would pull down that 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 veil or whatever you want to call it, so where I could feel like I could connect to people but I had a harder time connecting to people because I just, I subconsciously, I was guarded. I didn't want to, you know, be hurt like that again. And, you know, going through therapy and, and, and starting to understand some of these things didn't have that kind of come up. It was, it was really, and I, even to this day, uh, I mean, cause that, I had that um, vision or so to speak like that upheaval that was at 35, but I haven't really like 
even process through all this stuff until just recently, um, like uh, this year, actually. Wow. So the social anxiety piece, you, this was showing up all through your your young life, your young adulthood, up until now, I'm assuming. Um, but you didn't yeah. you didn't know what the root of it was. Until no, I mean I was the meditation. Yeah, so I was dealing, uh, you know, generalized anxiety. That's what I was uh, diagnosed with at like I don't know, 22, 23. Um, you know, and at that time, some of my therapists was like, you know, pick up mindfulness. That's when I first kind of sort of dabbling in it. But at that time I was 23 and, you know, to sit down in a room and like, you know, try to meditate without like a guided meditation. I was like, that's, that's crazy, man. I can't keep my, I, I can't have it silent and not be distracted for more than two minutes before I lose my mind. So there's no way I could do this (laughs) mindfulness. I hear you, man. What was it like when you first had that, uh, that sort of out of body experience? I, um, when I first started meditating, I would basically Mm -hmm. just lie down somewhere and I would just ask myself the same question over and over again. Like, um, Mm. you know, how do I manifest the relationship that I want? How do I earn $10,000 this month? Or, you know, like I would just ask myself the same question over and over again. And eventually I would sort of go into that low brainwave state with the question Mm -hmm. And at some point I remember when I, when I felt like my body was disconnected from my, my head, you know, like I, I'm I'm laying there kind of with my hands across my belly and Mm -hmm. my arm doesn't feel like it's mine, you know? And then if I can go deeper and deeper and deeper at one point, it got to the point where I would experience these tremendous vibrations throughout my body, even though my body was standing still. What was yeah. your experience like when you, when you got to that place? It was a little freaky for me, man. Yeah. Like I, that was like the, so in the induction, like, like with, with meditation, so there's usually an induction. That's when you go into like an alpha state and then you get deeper and deeper. Um, yeah. So it was similar to you, like where all my, it felt like I wasn't, I couldn't feel my body anymore. Um, I was focusing solely on my breath. And then as I was doing that, like I just, felt like, well, I would have images pop up from things that I hadn't seen in a long time. And I was trying not to, to focus on them. I was always coming back to the breath, but when that happened, um, it just felt surreal. Like, um, I felt like I, my body was completely numb. I I didn't feel it. And I just felt enlightened. And as I was looking down at my body, I was like, Whoa, you know, trying to hold on to that experience and it didn't last long. But I remember as I did that, I was like, oh, my God, that was so amazing. I want that to happen again. And it only happened like once or twice. And I was always chasing that. Like, I want to get to that meditative state. But you can't do that with meditation, like try to force things. You just got to let it. And I I love like what you said. You're just asking the questions. Make me think of like Edison's catnaps when he would ask the question and he would have the rock there to fall to wake him up so he could he wouldn't slip too deep into sleep. Yeah, that's exactly where I got that from, actually. Uh, He used to sit in a chair, I think with a steel ball yep. in his hand. And then when yep. he would drop it, when he fell asleep and it hit a metal pan or something and wake him up. Yep. But, but yeah, that was, that was kind of where that came from. And I always found that interesting that as adults, you know, as children, I think a lot of people don't realize that from the ages of zero to six, basically children are in trance state. So anything that they experience, they internalize, especially if there's a strong emotional bind to it, like a childhood trauma, molestation, yeah. something like that. Um, but then as you get older, 
you grow out of that because you're living more in your conscious mind. And so coming back to that place of what is the lowest brainwave? Is it Delta or Theta? I can't remember which. Uh, I think Delta, Delta or Gamma, one of the, the one, yeah, of, those one two of those thickest. lower. Yeah. When beginning mm-hmm. to that place is it's almost like you're in twilight sleep, you're asleep, but not mm-hmm. really. And so finding yeah. that little, that little, you know, line, wherever it is, is the trick, man. Has that been your experience as well? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really just, just letting, yeah. When you, when you get to those specific states, I mean, I don't know where my brain waves are when I'm, when I'm doing it, but I've, I've been doing most of the meditation I've been doing. I've been doing that now for 10 years meditating, but um, I've been always using something like a holo sync or like an equa sync, or I do a lot of Joe, Joe Dispenza debt uh, meditations, like his breaking the habit of being yourself. Um, the, you are the placebo uh, meditations. And yeah, it's, it's such a powerful, powerful tool to, to use. And really, you know, like you said, like, uh, you know, cause the answers are already here for us. We just have to ask the right questions. Right. For sure, man. For sure. I love the way you frame that. And so I'm curious, you know, as you grew into young adulthood, obviously you were playing a lot of sports. Um, and from what I understand, man, you're a pretty, pretty damn good athlete and, um, you know, and played at some, at some pretty high levels. So, you know, I'm curious the, the sort of differences that you find when you're in competition with someone, you know, versus yeah. being in a social situation, right? Because in both of those situations, like, I feel like I'm on, like, I have to be on in a social situation. Mm-hmm. I'm guarded. I yep. experienced some of that anxiety as well. I'm naturally more introverted and I can, you know, turn it on and off, but it's not my, it doesn't energize me to go to parties unless I'm talking philosophy or, you know, something really deep. Small talk yeah, just, yeah. just wears me out, right? And yeah. so there's that sort of showiness of being in a social situation. And then there's sort of the showiness of being on the field or on the ice or what have you of a sport. You know, yep. how did you sort of reconcile those two things? Like if you're having trouble in social situations, did you feel the same way on the ice or, you know, was it completely different? Um, I had some of the similar issues. So like when I would play really, really well and I would get like, I just, this was like a time um, I we were in some, some baseball tournament. I hit a grand slam. I hit this. I mean, this was probably, I think I was probably 11 or something like that. I remember I hit a grand slam and I hit the ball probably, this is not even exaggeration. I hit it like a hundred feet beyond the fence (laughs) and everybody was up in arms. And like, my parents would always want to like, you know, obviously, you know, they were, they were proud of me, but if they started bringing it up, like I would get really embarrassed. I didn't want people talking about me. Um, and this kind of like anytime I was recognized from, it was like, I wanted the the recognition, but I didn't want it. I didn't want to be in the spotlight. I never wanted like the attention on me. Um, same thing happened in the military. I was up for meritorious, various promotions, like multiple times on a company and platoon level. Um, and I just didn't like that spotlight on me. And I just felt really, really, uh, I would just shut down a lot of times and um, not like step into my power. And it really, uh, you know, looking back, it was, a you know, I, you know, I don't want to regret it, but it's, you know, everything that we've done in our lives shapes the person that we are now. Yeah. And to learn, learn that now is a powerful tool. But yeah, I had a lot of, I didn't like to be the center of attention. If I scored the game winning goal or whatever, I didn't want people to be like, you know, talking me up or anything like that. I would just always downplay it. So I always, I, I did have that. But the one thing um, with sports, especially ice hockey, um, the moment my, my skate hit the ice, it was like, I transcended to a whole nother place. The world went quiet. 
I didn't worry about anything. I didn't worry about anybody. Um, and I just, I just was in my space and I love that, man. That was like one of my the greatest things for me. That's amazing, man. Why do you think that was like, what's the, the big difference? You know, is it just that you don't really have to talk to people while you're on the ice and you just have a job to do? Like it's, I mean, it seems like, I guess when you're playing a sport, you definitely have a job to do technically. And then when yeah. you're in a social situation, it's more fluid. I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, what do you think about that? Um, I think for me, like with hockey, I mean, I, I ate and slept and breathed hockey. So it was just, it, can't, it comes innate, you know, like I, before games, I would put on like Joe Satriani and I would just listen to that and just, I would just visualize myself doing like specific systems that you would do. And so everything was just come naturally. And it's just like with anything, the less I think about golf, for instance, the less you think about it, the better you're going to play. If you're standing over the ball and you're like, I got to do this, I got to do that. I got to do this. You're not going to hit the ball good. Right. Um, or I think about it as like in my coaching with Bob Proctor coaching, he's like, just let go and let God. So he just talks about, and you create the vision, you let spirit work to and through you. And you just kind of let things happen instead of trying to force things. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's kind of like when I would be in the zone playing ice hockey, that was, you know, I was just, I, yeah, I just escaped and nothing, nothing bothered me, man. It was the best. That's cool, man. It sounds like you were just like in flow when you're in those moments, yeah. you know, like, yep. uh, yeah, I mean there, there, it seems as though there's, there's two schools of thought on that, right? Like if you like to use your words, you know, let go and let things flow through you. And then mm-hmm. there's the strategy piece as well. And it seems as though there has to be a fine balance between the two. And on some level, I, I like what you had to say about, you know, when you would go and play and, and before you get on the ice, you're listening to Satriani, who's a, a pretty amazing guitarist for those of you guys who don't know. Yeah. And, um, you know, you're visualizing the game like you're, you know, you're playing the game before you play the game, right? Yep. Yep. And so it seems as though that was a, one of your strategies to sort of get into flow in those places so that you could get out there and just, you know, run the gamut of all the emotions and all the experiences and different situations that you're going to experience on the ice. Right. Cause it's fluid. It's always, it's ever changing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's what's what Malcolm Gladwell, your 10,000 hours of practice or whatever to master something. And then when things become innate and you, you visualize them and I just think about, uh, uh, was it Jack Nicholas? He said he's ta- he's going to the movies before every shot. He visualizes exactly where the ball's going to go. Um, he visualizes the perfect swing, all these things, and you know, paints that shot, steps up and hits the ball. And it's just, yeah, visualization is huge. And I didn't really realize how you can use visualization in your business life and things like that. Even though I did it through, you know, um, using it to play sports and things like that. I, and visualization is such a powerful tool that we can use to our advantage. So you're still using it to this day? Uh, yeah, I do it in the morning. I do it for in the middle, at night. I try just to visualize that I'm doing the things I need to get done that day. And then at night, just, you know, kind of looking at what I didn't do right. And then what, you know, trying to change it. And I do use uh, Joe Dispens a lot. I use, uh, he's got a morning meditation and an evening meditation that I use that kind of helps you, uh, pick apart your day that way. Yeah. Some of his stuff is fantastic. I, um, I think it was breaking the habit of being yourself. You mentioned earlier, which is one of Mm -hmm. his books and it's the way that he's framed things is really sort of genius. And one of the things that he framed for me that I use and I've stolen from him and 
you know, if he's listening, hopefully he, he respects yeah. that. But the whole idea of remember your future. The, oh, yeah. The, uh, the first thing I do when I open my eyes in the morning or even before I open, open my eyes, as soon as I'm awake, I remember the future that I want to create for myself. And that's number one. You know, that's part of my sort of pre-flight ritual. And that yeah. brings me into my day. You know, remembering the future that I want to create helps frame my present so that I can operate at a, you know, more optimal level. Um, you know, your morning meditations, I'm curious what they look like for you. Are you visualizing um, like every aspect of your day? Like what I generally do is I'll take like the big chunks and I, I'm, I've been told that the more detailed you can make it, the better, you know, yeah. so I envision myself traveling with Christina We're you know, we're in a van, we're free, we have no ties, you know, uh, we live a life, a lifestyle of freedom and liberty and we're not bound. Right. And so yep. I just try to mm-hmm. bring all the imagery to my mind that makes me think of those things. What is, what does your look like? Yeah, for me a lot, you know, cause, um, so my business, I've been doing it now for, uh, three years and just really, I just left corporate America, not that long ago. So I was working both jobs for quite a while. So Six months ago, I left corporate America to work to do this full time. Kudos um, on that, by the way. Not easy. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That was <laughs> well. I have my wife to thank for that too, because she's been such a huge support for me and, you know, and helping me get there as well. Um, but yeah, so visualization for me in the morning, it's usually visualizing a few of the tasks, like getting them done to completion. Um, and then I go into like specifically where I want myself to be in like 90 days and I visualize where I like my clients to be, how many clients I have. Um, like you, you're talking about, you know, you and Christine, like being, having the freedom to do what you want and all that. Same thing with me, with my wife, um, just living the life that we want. And we're extremely fortunate and grateful for like so many things that are, you know, been happening for us and to us. And, you know, I, I like to believe that we create our own luck and we, we can create our own, um, our, our, our own life and, and everything like that. So, uh, and the visualization part is really a big part of that. hundred percent, man. You mentioned leaving corporate, which is one of the things that when I talk to my clients and my people in my circles, a lot yep. of them have a tremendous fear of, and, you know, understandably so. I mean, most people who are, you know, early middle-aged or middle-aged at this point have created a life of obligation. And I asked this question on Facebook and people, I think misunderstood it to some degree. But when I'm saying obligation, they've obligated themselves to things that they don't necessarily understand the long-term ramifications of. So like if you obligate yourself to a very expensive mortgage or you obligate yourself to a a very expensive lease or car payment or what have you, you obligate Mm -hmm. yourself to 10 kids instead of two, you know, like these are all decisions that people make and they obligate themselves to. And then now all of a sudden comes this idea of responsibility and this idea of, well, as long as I have a job, I can maintain, I can keep up the show, right? I can keep the circus on the road and my buddy will never know that I'm unhappy. You know, my neighbors will never see the despair in my eyes. Right. So I'm just curious what your journey was like when you were making that decision. Um, you know, it's, it's super courageous. I just have to give you all the props there. Um, but you you know, what was going through your head and and what sort of circumstances and strategies did you use to say, listen, enough is enough. I'm doing my own thing. Yeah. So, um, my job, uh, I, and I'm super, super grateful to AT&T. I mean, they, they paid me well. I was making a great salary at a great, you know, benefits and things like that. It was, uh, we always called it the golden handcuffs because it was such a good gig, but 
Um, it was just kind of soul sucking and, and towards the end there, uh, it was just so negative to be around. I saw all the old guys that were there, you know, 35, 40 years, they're all salty and just, you know, I, I didn't want that for myself. And I didn't, I was, I had a hard time being in that environment because it, it, um, there was a lot of negativity, uh, due to the culture of the company, um, a lot of downsizing going on. So people are really, you know, nervous. Are they going to have a job and things like that? Uh, and I, I just didn't want that. And so, uh, part of my, like, you know, my health issues when, when, when Lyme and, you know, the mold and all that kind of set in, but to me, it's always, it's, there's more to it than just these specific things. And one of the things was like, I wasn't aligned with my purpose or my path for so long. Um, but I was, I was negating it. I was ignoring it because I was making such good money and I'm like, Oh, you know, life is great and blah, blah, blah. But I didn't really think about, is this really what I want to do? And it was wearing on me. Um, so then I, when I started coaching, I'm like, this is what I really want to do. Um, and so doing that, hired a coach and started working under them and started getting clients and sort of making money, built up some savings. Then I had, you know, six months in uh, savings and reserves. And then my, my wife makes a good, good salary and really supportive of me as well. But as far as like that, wanting to leave, cause I've been talking about it for probably man, five years or more. And then you know, the guys at work are probably like, oh yeah, he's just, he's just, you know, that's, there's Ryan again, telling him, telling him how he's going to leave here and start his own business and stuff. And, and then my wife kind of just kind of put it to me and she's like, you know, are you going to do this or not? And I'm like, I got the money, like, and I was very, very scared. I'll never forget like calling my boss. Cause he had told me that, Hey, you know, you got to work uh, Memorial day weekend. You're the one you're going to be on schedule. And I'm like, Hey, just, just to let you know that I'm not going to be around Memorial Day week. And he's like, well, what are you talking about, dude? I'm like, uh, I'm leaving, man. I'm, I'm giving you my two weeks. And he's like, he just like was floored. Um, and he's like, dude, like what? He's like, are you kidding me? He's like, you know, you have 22 years with the company, like your pension all this. He's like, you know, cause I didn't reach full retirement status. So I didn't get any retirement benefits or anything like that. He's like, you're going to leave all that. Said, I'm not going to stick around here for eight more years. And, you know, and, miss out on what I could be creating for myself and miss out on time with my wife and my family because of this job. And, um, and it was really, really scary conversation to have with him. But once I did that, uh, and he kept giving me the out, he's like, you're, you don't have to do this. You know, you don't have to do this. But I remember signing the paperwork as I was being released and let go. And I was like, Whoa, like this is real. Shit just got real. Yeah. Yeah. It got, it got really <laughs> real. Um, and you know, here I am now, um, I, I couldn't be happier. So, I mean, again, I, I couldn't, I don't know if I could have done this without my wife, but, um, I mean, just kind of getting your ducks in the row and, you know, definitely having money saved in case, you know, things got really bad and then just believing in yourself enough to do it and step out and get out of your comfort zone. Man, I had no idea your, your situation, uh, uh, to that level of detail. I think knowing that you put basically a retirement package on the line and you said enough is enough. I think that gives me that much more respect for you because I mean, they were dangling some serious carrots, man. I mean, you know, eight yeah. years and you're, you know, you're, you're going to get this sort of, you know, easy street sort of a paycheck coming your way every month. And then you could still mm -hmm. do the coaching eight years from now if that's what you wanted to do. Right. So all of that, I'm sure was going through your head and, you know, weighing that, but mm -hmm man, just to, just realizing what you said about the eight years and, and how much you chose to honor your time 
more than a paycheck, dude. That is yeah. That's heroic, man. You're my you're my you're my freshest <laughs> hero, man. <for> sure. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's like I was like, oh, I can I can create that money on my own now. I'm I'm in charge of that, so not you know not AT and T and and I'm mean, again, I have you know nothing uh, bad against AT and T. They were really great to me, but yeah, having um, having the ability to do that and to walk away is is very um, it's, it's been awesome, man. I, I really appreciate it. And, uh, I know my wife does, and she, again, she's my biggest cheerleader, always helping and supporting me. So yeah, it's, it's been, it's been awesome. It's been some ups and downs. Things have been a little, little tough, but, uh, that's to be expected as part of the journey, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, still though, I mean, just the fact that you realize the, the value of your time. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that, each of us have made at some point in life. I know I'm guilty of just not realizing how important my time is. You can always earn more money, you yep. know, but you can never get more time back. And so when people don't see the equation that way, it, it really, it, it shines a light, I think on where a lot of our society is uh, from a mental standpoint and also how obligated they are. Right. If, if, yeah, you know, if you can't get away from that job or that check or don't have anything in saving, I think the average American has something like $400 in savings. <laughs> yeah. It's, that's not going to so, take you very far. Right? No, so no, it's the short term thinking isn't going to get you there. Right. No. And I, I think that's too, like, you know, as a society, we're just so, so everything's about quick fix and instant gratification and, um, to not, you know, to, to learn to delay gratification and, you know, put things off to create, you know, live, live, uh, what is, I know Dave Ramsey, what does he say? Uh, live like nobody else now. So you can live like nobody else or like nobody else later. Cause you have the, the next day again, you're able to travel and buy the cars and do all the things, but you just have to delay that gratification now. Yeah, for sure. Delayed gratification is one of those phrases my dad drilled into my brain when I was a kid and I never, never took it seriously. You know, it was yeah. much later in life, even though he, tr he did his best, but I was just a dumb kid with a thick skull and what can <laughs> yeah, you do? Was, yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. I was, I was that kid as well. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned something that uh, has surfaced on my radar from a couple different people recently. One of my mentors actually uh, released some information about how um, his health had suffered and he went to a bunch of different places and was unable to determine the reason why. And I believe you gave the punchline earlier. You were talking a bit about uh, mold issues, mm -hmm. but shed a little bit of light on that. Uh, and this Lyme disease issue, give us a little bit of information about what that is, how it came to be. And I know you mentioned some of the symptoms that you experienced, but just mm -hmm. how um, you had to deal with that in your life and overcome it. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, coming back to, you know, we were talking about childhood trauma and, and anxiety and all that things. Um, I did learn, you know, sort of when I started cleaning up my diet and things like that, pulling certain foods out that help with the anxiety and things like that. But um, mold is extremely um, disastrous for people. So 50% of the homes and buildings in the United States have had water damage. And there's 25, there's a, there's a subset of the population, 25% of them that do not have the genetics to create antigens to the mycotoxins, which are neurotoxins that are produced. Um, it's like the mold's defenses. So they produce these things that are called mycotoxins and they're extremely neurotoxic. And I happen to be one of that 25% that I wasn't able to create antigens to detox it out of my system. Mm -hmm. And so if you're somebody that falls into that subset, um, you get exposed to mold and 
it, it's, you know, we call it the bucket. You have your detox bucket and um, with your detox organs are working everything. It's, it's getting filtered through the liver and gallbladder and all that good stuff. And everything con continues to drain out. But if you don't have that, um, uh, the ability to create the antibodies, what happens is, is the mold toxins will run through the system. They'll get into your digestive tract. They'll get reabsorbed with the bile and come back and they just keep recirculating. So I was just getting sicker and sicker and sicker and mold toxins affect every system in the body, your hormones, your nervous system, your, your immune system, your digestion, your brain. Um, cause our body, um, likes, you know, our body has an amazing way of protecting us and it stores these toxins and fat cells and, but your brain happens to be like 30% fat. So there's a big thing, your myelin sheaths and your nerves are fat. And so these things can get stored there and create all these neurological issues. Um, and I see this so often in my population that I work with, I work with mostly women who are dealing with fibromyalgia, Lyme disease, mold illness, autoimmunity. Um, and they're told cause they've been to 20, 30 different doctors that, oh, you have fibromyalgia. This is just the way it is. You're gonna have to live with this. And they're, they're dealing with anxiety and depression. They're dealing with, um, joint pain, whole body pain, um, uh, myofascial pain, trigger points, um, like I, I said, insomnia, fatigue, all these different weird things um, that could also be, uh, so mold could be at, a, at the root for that. They did a study, um, I think Dr. Brewer did a study and they took the urine of uh, like 112 people with chronic fatigue syndrome, 93% of them had mold toxins coming out of their urine. Mm. And so this is being unchecked. So it's a lot bigger than most people realize and it's becoming a bigger thing with more of the way we build buildings now. They don't breathe. And so we're getting all these water damage and people are affected by it. And they can chase this forever, but it can be, you can be diagnosed with autoimmune disease. You can be get up, you know, MS, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, sojourns, um, all these different things could be related to mold. And then if we want to switch over to Lyme, Lyme is also, it's got the term, it's called the great in imitator uh, because that affects you neurologically too. And so Lyme is, um, it's the Borrelia burgdorferi, uh, it's a spirochete similar to syphilis. So it kind of spirals into your tissues, but it also morphs into two other, it can be, uh, a cyst form and then it goes intracellular. And these microbes are so intelligent. They've been around for so long. Um, and they can, they can continually change the outer, uh, protein of their DNA, their DNA, their outer edge protein. So the immune system can, it's always cloaking itself. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it can evade the immune system and that can lead to, uh, again, fatigue, joint pain, neurological symptoms, ticks, bowels, palsy, uh, MS, digestive issues, um, degenerative discs, because Lyme likes to break down cartilage and fat tissue and it uses your body to attack itself in an autoimmune sort of sense to get the nutrients that it needs. Um, and so it's a really, really complex thing and a lot of people um, you know, spend years. So for me, I was in the mold. I went to 20 different doctors. They all told me I was, you know, all in my head that I needed to see a shrink and be on antidepressants. And I just, I just wouldn't take it. They diagnosed me with fibromyalgia. And I'm like, I'm like, I read, I read Richie Shoemaker's book, surviving mold. And he talks all about, it. I'm like, these are the symptoms I'm having. Let's run these blood labs. So there's lot, there's labs that look at specific inflammation markers in the body that can tip us off to like being mold or, um, um, or being a Lyme issue that no doctors run unless they're, they're, um, uh, you know, trained or well-versed in this stuff. And so 
you'll go to the doctor like uh, my doctors told me you're like the perfect bill of health. Like my, my cholesterol is like 200. My LDL is like a hundred. My uh, triglycerides are like 50, no C-reactive protein, no sedimentation rate. They're like, you have no inflammation, but yet I had a positive ANA and I was hurting all over, but they were looking at, they're looking in the wrong places. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So if you're dealing with anything like that, it's, you need to look deeper or, you know, keep asking questions. And if you, if you feel in your gut that you know something's wrong with you, trust yourself, trust your instincts. So you mentioned uh, Lyme and um, mold toxicity sort of in the same breath there. Are, are, you, are you basically saying that they have similar sorts of manifestations in the human body? They do, very similar, because they're both produced, they're both neurotoxic, like the toxins they produce. Um, I, I see mold and Lyme go together a lot of times. So my what I, my theory on myself is that I probably got Lyme when I was 10 years old. I mean, I grew up in Minnesota, you know, always in the woods playing, you know, Rambo or whatever and getting bit by ticks all the time. And I was kind of a sickly kid. I got sick a lot. I got like strep once a year, bronchitis, all these types of things. And, um, so the tick then, thing isn't just a wives tale. It's, it's actually true. No. Yeah, it, it's true. But the thing is, is that Lyme can be passed, you know, you can, Mothers can pass it to their um, children through birth. Um, there's, uh, it hasn't been stated. There's still questions of whether or not it can be sexually transmitted. Um, but fleas can carry it. Other biting insects, so vector-borne, uh, can carry a lot of these different illnesses um, that manifest in the body. But Lyme is one specific bacteria, which is Borrelia burgdorferi, and in my um, my own personal journey and that with many others that I work with, uh, Lyme comes with like a whole cocktail of uh, things because your immune system gets knocked down. So now you're dealing with something like Bartonella, uh, which is cat scratch fever. You can get Babesia, which is like, it's very similar to malaria. So it's a bloodborne parasite. Um, You can get viruses like retroviruses, reactivate Epstein-Barr. So anything that's going to weaken your immune system just makes you susceptible to all these things. And then you know, Lyme is on the rise now. Uh, and for me, like, again, I think I contracted it when I was younger, but then throughout my late teens and early twenties, my immune system was well enough to manage it. And what Lyme can do is it can lie dormant in the system and just be there, not doing anything. And it's waiting for the perfect opportunity. And that opportunity was me, um, you know, living in the moldy home. I had to, I had houses and homes in foreclosure during the, the housing bubble. Um, I, I, my fiance and I had broken up just like a perfect storm of all this. I was working two jobs and like, it just, the, the mold just broke the camel's back. And all of a sudden that those microbes came out and wanted to party. And I'm a big proponent of the, um, of the terrain theory of disease versus the germ theory. So if we can change the terrain, then the germs will go away. So can you um, break the differences down for us real quick? For the Lyme and, and uh, mold? No, for the two different theories. Oh, okay. So germ theory was uh, Louis Pester. It's the you know it's been the big thing in in medicine, and his belief is that the germ is coming from outside of us. So we catch you know COVID or you know Epstein Barr or whatever, and the only way to fix it is to kill that that bite microbe off, or you get a bacterial infection, and that can be the case for certain you know acute bacterial infections. We have back we have antibiotics that are great for that, but what past um uh anton Pashemp was the one that came up with um and he studied alongside pasteur and pasteur stole a lot of his information 
And there's there's talk that Pasteur on his deathbed said told Deschamps is you know what you're right it is the the the, the terrain theory and the terrain theory is that we have the ability to if you take care of yourself by eating a healthy diet by getting enough sleep by um, you know trying to align to your purpose um, managing stress and living life as close to nature and, and the, the universal laws of nature as possible then we can we create in harmony it's just like the soil um, and if we can we can keep that that inner terrain healthy the bugs in our microbiome and everything else will function properly and it's not a hospitable home for these microbes but when you throw in toxins because um, we're living in an extremely toxic world we're under a lot of stress our food is no longer nutritious um, and there's just all this the stuff going on starts shifting that internal terrain and through what's called pleomorphism these actual good bugs in our in our system can actually morph into pathogenic opportunistic bugs and then this creates disease in the body and then that is the terrain theory so the terrain is shifted and now these microbes are always with us but instead of being friendly they've turned into pathogenic and in order for us to shift us back into health we need to move back into um, harmony with nature and just create that that um, you know that body of health to push out the bad things. So would it be fair to say that we in that scenario we are controlling more more or less the epigenetic factors of our lives and then that is creating the terrain within our bodies that that you're referring to in terms of the terrain theory? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean then and then yeah, I mean, uh, the whole epigenetics, you throw that in, then you got psychoneuroimmunology, psychoneuroendocrinology, neuro, or, or so how our thoughts impact our, our physiology. And I've been getting into some other stuff lately about human biofields and stuff like that, connecting to higher consciousness, and we can, we can go down that realm too. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, that's woo-woo, that's out there, that's not real, but it's, it's being tested scientifically now. Um, and it's, uh, and if you want a really good book on that, it's called healing, healing our, uh, healing ourselves, biofield science, the future of health. And they've been doing this, um, studies for quite some time now, um, on the human biofield and they've tested like remote healing and things like that. There's a, actually a Reiki master from Japan and they had people in the U S where they had cancer, uh, cancer cells in, in Petri dishes. And he was sending healing vibrations from Japan as a Reiki master, and they saw they saw um, they saw the cancer cells die and the healthy cells grow. And this has been done in scientific labs. So yeah, you, you see or hear some of these things, and it's it does sound very woo woo, but you know there's so much we don't know. You can't discount it. Right, right. You know, if one particle here can affect a, an entangled particle somewhere on the other side right, of the galaxy, right? right? Yeah. Why can't you send some healing vibes, right? <laughs> yeah, it's 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 crazy, man. I mean, yeah, entanglement. You get into quantum, you know, quantum physics, quantum theory. Like, yeah, there's so much that we don't know, and we become so arrogant. Like, we think we can kill everything outside of, like, you know, just kill them with a vaccine, kill them with a, a you know, antibiotics, and again. These things can be great in certain situations, but we can't like we need to live in harmony with nature. And I say with like Lyme disease, Lyme disease has been on the planet for millions of years and it's mm -hmm. it's evolved. But what what's changed is how we're living with the planet. Yes. And and we just have this mindset that we're above everything and we just have to kill everything. Yes. And then now we're killing the planet. And we're killing ourselves. Yeah. Jonathan Haidt writes about this in one of his books. I forget which one. I'm 
I've, I've read all of his books, but he, he gives the example of his kid going to school. And as part of the orientation, the teacher is standing up in front of the, uh, the incoming class and giving all the rules and regulations, you know, and because of peanut allergies, they had uh, a mandate that you could not bring anything peanut related in any lunch in any form into the school. Right. And this was, I'm not sure what year this was or what have you, but this started way back when. And then, of course, the more that they removed the peanut from the population, the less exposure we had. And then now all of a sudden peanut allergies have exploded. Like everybody's got a peanut allergy because they weren't exposed to this sort of, you know, little this little, you know, legume, if you want to earlier in life. And they didn't have the ability to develop a way to to contend with it. And like you said, yeah. We're living such sterilized lives. We don't play in the dirt. You know, every kid lives in a bubble. You know, yep. it's no wonder that people are seem to be sicker or seem to be weaker as the generations go on because we are protecting ourselves. And I use that word in air quotes. We are protecting yeah. ourselves from yeah, the things yeah, that really yeah. could provide protection from us or for us, I should say. Yeah. It was kind of like the hygiene hypothesis. So they've, you know, because like... Um, uh, areas it's you know go to hunter gatherers and stuff like that or you even go back to like um uh weston price you know looking mm-hmm. at at um indigenous populations records, that lived right? yeah dental records and just how we you know westernized societies like their like facial structures change their dental arches get narrower but yet these um indigenous populations have perfect you know facial structure their teeth are well the good bridges um, and so there's, you know, you know, food is medicine and, you know, we're, we're, we're just moving away from that. And it's, it's really, really sad. And, um, you know, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of all the, all the different things that uh, are happening right now, but, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. And then we just kind of got to bring it back. And I, I really love, you know, the, the microbiome is so powerful and it's, to me, it just relates to the soil. And I don't know if you saw that documentary that Woody Harrelson did kiss the dirt. I haven't seen that yet. No. Yeah. It's really, really good. They talk about, it's amazing talking about how the soil is the biggest sequester of carbon, mm-hmm. but due to our monocropping and we've just eroded our topsoil, there's no microbes and there's the soil is so bad. It can't absorb carbon from the air. Yes. And, and so if we can start farming the way it should be rotating crops, um, having, you know, moving your, your cattle around. So they fertilize, they aerate, you move them to a different area that regrows and you're just growing more grasslands. And now you have more things pulling carbon out of the air. And, you know, the same thing is going on with our digestive system. Mm-hmm. You know, we, the more and more we learn about the human microbiome, I mean, it's, I mean, more serotonin and dopamine and GABA is created in your digestive tract than it is in your brain. And these are things that we're giving people for things like anxiety, depression, and all that. And we're starting to realize that, you know, through the gut brain connection, um, that the inflammation in the digestive tract can create, you know, uh, um, inflammation in the brain through the, you know, leaky blood, blood brain barrier. And then this creates a lot of the mental issues or, you know, uh, psychological, emotional issues that we're seeing as well. Um, just because we're, you know, drinking basically, you know, eat, drinking and eating things that are killing the, the healthy microbes of our body. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, soil um, and you mentioned crop rotation. I think you also mentioned um, ruminants, you know, ruminants. Yeah, re- regenerative uh, farming. Yeah. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. So are you familiar with Alan Savory's work? 
Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's a big proponent of that. It's amazing to see, you know, some of these areas that have experienced desertification and they've gone in and put ruminants on the soil. And all of a sudden, you know, even in these um, areas where they don't get much water, all of a sudden you mm-hmm. have plants growing again and all this kind of thing. It's, it's almost like magic. It is like magic. Well, the other thing too, is like, like a lot of my clients have a lot of like fungal issues and stuff like that as well. And you see, a lot of digestive things, but the way I looked at it, um, I read in uh, Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride's latest book, uh, The Gut and Physiology Syndrome. She talks about how um, fungus, and there's an amazing, uh, my wife always jokes me because I always talk about this, This uh, there's a, a documentary on Netflix called Fantastic Fungi, and just you can really learn about how important fungi and fungi is to the circle of life and and cleaning things up. And so if you think about it, like a toxic spill or toxic dump, um, like if you have like Chernobyl, when Chernobyl happened, nothing grew, but the first thing to grow there was fungus Mm. and like, and mold and mold because it can, it can break down these compounds and make them non-toxic. And so when people are dealing with a lot of fungal issues, it's because they're toxic. And so those, again, those microbes shift, Everybody's got candida in their digestive tract, but it will become more rampant when you're dealing with toxins because it's there to help the body out and deal with these toxins in a safe manner. Yeah. So let's, um, I know we got to honor your time here, but let's dive into the mold conversation just for a quick second. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then we'll have to do probably three or four more podcasts to get all this information. <laughs> right. But um, you mentioned uh, mold and not having the ability to deal with it and therefore mm-hmm. it, it it sounds as though what you were saying earlier is that basically it continues to load in your body. And as yep. it loads, it has a greater and greater impact on your, on your physicality, on how you show up in the world. So speak yep. to that for a moment about what someone might do to, you know, A, figure out if that's an issue that they're experiencing and B, mm-hmm. to, to deal with it. Yeah. So if you're somebody who's um, dealing with really strange, um, complex symptoms, specifically that are really neurologically related, you might have a lot of endocrinological things. So hormonal issues for women, even men. Um, If you put on rapid weight gain and you can't figure out why, um, you might want to start digging into mold, especially if you know that maybe your basement got flooded or you have like a leaky sink or something, or if there's mold in your home. And in order to get to figure this out, there are like Great Plains Laboratory um, does a great mycotoxin uh, urine panel. If you can you know, have that run through a practitioner like myself or somebody else who's um, well-versed in mold, um, they, you can find it that way. Uh, you can do it through just like, you know, if I know somebody, excuse me, if I had a client that I know was living in mold and they're having all these symptoms, I'm like, you have mold issues. So the first thing you need to do is either a get out of the mold. That's like number one. And so that's either remediating your home or you have to move. And so like for me in my situation, I had to walk away from my condo. I ended up having to file bankruptcy um, after spending $20,000 on remediation, but I was in a condo where the unit below me was vacant due to a foreclosure and the bank wasn't doing anything on it. So it was either I had to pay for that to get fixed or I would have had mold, like the mold, the mold repeaters, like, you know, we, we can finish your unit. I mean, they had it completely gutted. And they said, uh, once you get it back, you'll have mold in your unit again in like a month or two. And I'm like, you know what? I'm out. Yeah. I choose, you know, I'm choosing my health over this. So this is the biggest problem. Like the, it's the number one thing is to get out of the mold, but it's the hardest thing to do. 
I, I was a DJ for um, 15 years. Uh, I had like 2000 records that I had to get rid of because mold likes to like those mycotoxins get stuck in porous things. So anything that's cardboard and, you know, carpets and drapes and things like that start to house these things. You walk by, they kick up this bloom of mycotoxins and you can get hit by it. But so the first thing is like, start thinking that then look for somebody that's qualified to work in mold, like more and more functional medicine practitioners are getting into this. And there's certain blood markers that you can look for. Uh, C4A is a big one. Uh, MP9, TGF beta one. These are some good markers to look for that your doctor is not going to, you know, if you're going to your regular doctor, they're going to be like, what are you talking about? And like I said, with me, they ran the blood markers. I had no inflammation markers, but when we ran the, the mold markers, like my C4A, like, yeah, I think, I can't remember, I want to say C4A should be around uh, like 2,800 or somewhere around there. I was like 16,000. Oh, wow. And then there, I mean, there's, I've seen people 54,000, like these markers, and then you start having bloody noses and you can't sleep. So if you're dealing with insomnia and like a lot of anxiety, um, maybe ticks or things like fibromyalgia, you have like these trigger point pains. Um, that's definitely something you want to dig into. And then like the goal of it really is just to open up drainage pathways. So drainage pathways are going to be your lymphatics, your liver, your gallbladder. And then if you're somebody that like me, you're going to need some support to escort these toxins out of you. And that's where you bring on things like binders, which are like charcoal, bentonite clay, um, humic and fulvic acid. These things will bind onto those. Um, they're uh, positive or negatively charged because the toxins are positively charged. So they bind onto them like a magnet and they escort them out through the stool. And so um, that's like really how you got to do it. And then once you start binding those toxins up, they're not being recirculated, then your tissues will start to release more of the toxins because your body, your body will store um, these things in fat cells. And so then once your body's like, Oh, we can release these things now, then it will start dumping out. And this can take anywhere Depending upon how long you've been in the mold and how bad you are, it could uh, you could overcome it in a couple months, or it might take a couple years to detox all this wow. out of your system. That's insane. And so this yeah. is one of the things that you focus on inside your practice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Well, I know we're coming up on the end of the hour, my friends, and mm -hmm. I want to honor your time. But there are so many topics that we just scratched the surface of. I'd love to have yeah. you come back <laughs> yeah. at some point in the future if you're open to that. Yeah. No, I'd love that. That'd be great. Well, let's plan on that, man. And, um, you know, at this point, you know, you've, you've left the corporate world, you're, you're, you know, you've been running your, your own practice now for a few years mm -hmm. and obviously extremely knowledgeable, helping everyone you can, you know, what does success look like for you inside your practice these days? Um, success for me is just having time, freedom, doing what I love, having enough money to do what I like. You know, I, I was like, you know, people ask me that when I was younger, like, what would success be? And I said, success for me would be just to be happy doing what I'm doing. So does it mean that I need to make a million dollars a year? No, I just want to be, I want to be comfortable and enjoying what I'm doing. And I think, you know, I think, uh, what did, um, Earl Nightingale said, success is the progressive realization of a worthy, worthy ideal. And so it's more about the journey or, and, and not the destination. And I've learned that before because I've hit goals. And then when I get to them, I'm, I'm never fulfilled. I always want more. Mm -hmm. So if you focus more on the process and the journey and you enjoy that and you enjoy the person that you become, to me, that success. Success is really just, 
like you mentioned, I know you're, you're big on freedom. I'm huge on freedom too. Like I choose freedom over everything else. That's like our most amazing right and gift to have and to have the freedom financially to, to go and see and do the things you want to be, to have the freedom health wise to where, I mean, I envision myself, I want to be like Jack LaLanne. I'd like to be able to do a handstand and when I'm like 90, you know, and just be living a, a, a high quality life. And, and that to me would be success. I appreciate that, man. I think more and more people are coming to that realization that it's not solely about income, right? It's about yeah. lifestyle, that, that, that total package, if you will. You know, so obviously um, over the course of the hour, you've done a fantastic job of laying out some extremely important concepts, some, some um, extremely important things that we can look for in our own health. Mm-hmm. So if there's anyone out there listening that would like support and would like to get in contact with you, can you give us some information on how to reach out to you, what type of clients you're looking for, and, um, you know, maybe uh, drive a mention of your social media yeah so um i said i i mostly work with women because they're the ones that tend to, to to gravitate towards me but i do work with men as well um you can find me so uh, i'm on instagram at ryan double underscore severson that's r-y-a-n underscore underscore s-y-v is in victor e-r-s-o-n or ryan severson on facebook um yeah and you know if you're dealing with mold you have any questions like you know reach out to me um even if you don't know you have mold i can you know and if i'm not able to help you i have a great network of people i can um refer you to uh and it's again i work with anybody who's dealing really complex issues be it autoimmunity fibromyalgia lyme disease mold illness things that um that your doctor um is not able to figure out or uh like your specialists because i i I call it the ologist. You do the, you do your runs around the ologist. Cause I went to neurologist, endocrinologist, gastroenterologist, all these different ologists. And Al told me it was crazy. I was crazy. And then, you know, here I am now at 45 feeling just as healthy, if not healthier than I when I was 25. So that's amazing, brother. Absolutely. So we'll definitely get all that linked up as well as some of the resources that you mentioned in the podcast, in the show notes. Mm-hmm. And so my last question is always the same, my friend. And that is what does wellness mean to you? And wellness to me just means being at, at peace with yourself, loving yourself, like self-compassion, self-care, respecting yourself enough to, to do the things that you need to do. Cause it's easy to do the things that we're not supposed to be doing. Um, and so self-care, we need to make time for ourselves, uh, each day. If it's five minutes, that's all you can have. That's good. Um, and just wellness all in all is ha- like having energy quality of life, being able to think clearly, um, and just, you know, connecting with people and, and just living a happy, fun filled life and, and feeling joy. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. Thank you for that. Everyone answers it a little bit different. It's such a, a broad question. I appreciate you. Yeah. So there you have it guys. Uh, Ryan Severson, um, functional health coach and so much more as I'm sure you've gathered from this podcast. He is, an amazing resource and can definitely be of service to any of you guys. So if you feel the need, reach out to Ryan. I'll have everything linked up in the show notes. And as always, we appreciate you listening. And Ryan, man, I'm looking forward to episodes three, four, and five with you because we <laughs> didn't even get into half of this stuff. Oh, so. man. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be back, man. I'm, I, I would love to come back and, and dig into more of this stuff. Let's do it, brother. Let's do it. We'll go ahead and plan that off, Mike. And to everyone else, enjoy the show. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. 
That's going to do it for this episode of Hardwater Radio, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys. And if you're vibing on this content, be sure and help us grow the tribe by liking, sharing, subscribing. And by all means, leave us a comment on your favorite podcatcher. Let us know what you like, what you dislike. And if you are someone out there who would like to tell your story, we are a collector of stories here. Shoot me a message, jason at hardwater.com or pick me up on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever works for you. And I'd love to have that conversation with you guys. Until then, this is Jason Archer signing off, reminding you to remember your future.